0: Well, at this time of season, I began to work on a lesson to discuss the birth of Christ. And I got over to Isaiah chapter seven, and then I began to think of second Peter one, sixteen through twenty one, which talks about uh, prophecy being of no private interpretation. The idea is is that we don't interpret the scriptures. And he goes on in in second uh, Peter there to say that the prophecy was given to us by inspired men. And so, As I began to work on the birth of Christ, I changed my lesson. We're going to talk about the prophecies of Christ. Uh, I've never given a lesson like this. I started on one some time ago, and this is an extremely difficult lesson. Not not to follow along with, but it's difficult for a number of reasons. And so for for one of those reasons, as I go today, please do me a favor. You can see what the very next passage is going to be if you look at the outline. And what we're going to do is, is we're going to begin to look at the prophecies and then the fulfillment. As we, as we think about Christ. Uh, there have been a lot of people, not only today but also in the past, who neither believe in Christ nor do they believe in the claims that the prophecies of the Old Testament confirm that Jesus Christ was in fact our Lord and Savior, that He was the Messiah. And so this morning what we're going to do is, is we're going to go back and we're going begin, to begin to look at some of those Old Testament prophecies, and then we will actually go and we will look where they're quoted in the New Testament, uh, as a claim that they are being fulfilled. Now, as we look at prophecies, let me say this, there are hundreds of prophecies. Uh, If you look up scholars to determine exactly how many, the number will vary. You'll find people listing uh, 351. You'll find people listing in excess of 400. So let's just go with a a round number for those of you that wonder about how many prophecies are there of Christ. Uh, Roughly, you can say about 400, plus or minus 50, depending on the scholar. So certainly I couldn't cover all of them. I started to try. (laughs) You can't do it. So what we are going to do is we're going to pick some of these prophecies. Now you may be asking before we begin to do this, what is really even the purpose of studying these prophecies of the Messiah? Well, the answer is this. Studying the historical evidence, and I would encourage you to do that, in addition with the scripture which was given to us by uh, inspired men, confirms the fulfillment of these messianic prophecies, And it can either for a person who's not yet a Christian begin a belief in Christ, or for those who are already Christians, it further strengthens their confidence that they already have that Jesus is the Messiah. And so it is important for you every time you study the Scriptures, when you begin to find prophecy, that you go back and you confirm. And and again, I encourage you, go back and look at the historical evidence. Look at the historical writers who would confirm, for example, Christ and when He was born. There's much of that evidence out there. Now, again, I told you I started off, I was going to begin in Isaiah 7 as we looked at the birth of Christ. And certainly we need to start there. Now, let me say this, and I'm going to try to, I am, I'm going to try not to add verses on the fly. Uh, I know that I I will do it. But when I do, and I know it's not in the outline, I'm going to tell you. If it's not on my outline, I know it's not in yours. So I'll let you know as I add them. Uh, But let me mention this, because it's what many call the holiday season, Uh, it's Christmas time. I probably should do another lesson on this, but. If you go back, you will find that nowhere in the first century church, uh, nowhere amongst early Christians did anybody celebrate a religious holiday called Christmas or the birth of Christ. Jesus was not born on December 25th. Uh, The scriptures don't tell us when he was born. Actually, the clues take us to a totally different season. Uh, That was a Catholic holiday, same as Easter. Uh, And so the religious tradition that many have today talking about Christ mass or the mass in which they celebrate Christ's birth, Uh, That's nowhere to be found in Scripture. And so that's why we don't celebrate it as a religious holiday. I have a Christmas tree at my house. We celebrate it as a secular time for family to come together, but we don't celebrate it as a religious holiday. But there are things that the Bible does tell us about the birth of Christ, and much of that does point back to prophecy. So let's go on over to Isaiah chapter 7 as we start off with one of the biggest prophecies. All right, Isaiah chapter 7. We're going to notice here that The Messiah is going to be born of a virgin. Isaiah 7, 14, and then after that we're going to go over into Matthew chapter 1. Isaiah writes by inspiration, Therefore the Lord Himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call His name Emmanuel. Now, I'm not sure what revision most of you or version most of you are using. There are some versions that translate that word "their virgin, as uh, young maiden. Guys, young maidens have babies all the time. That is not a sign that the Messiah is here, but it is a miraculous sign when a virgin conceives and has a son. Now let's go on over to Matthew chapter 1. We're going to look at the fulfillment of this. This is actually the very first passage of Scripture I ever memorized when I was in school. All of it at one time. Stand up and give it. Follow along with me, Matthew 1. We're going to start in verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise, when as his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privily. Let me pause for a minute. The woman he's betrothed to is pregnant. Now you can imagine the thoughts that are in his mind, right? But he's going he's to privately put her away. We know what the punishment was for that. But while he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife. For that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit, and she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. This isn't in your notes. Jot down Genesis three fifteen. That is the very first prophecy in our scriptures regarding Christ. Okay, and I would really tie that into this as he saves people from their sins. Verse twenty two. Again, that was Genesis three fifteen, first prophecy in our scriptures regarding Christ. Now all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child. Notice this, he's quoting from Isaiah chapter 7. And shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. We saw the prophecy, we now see the fulfillment. And here's the thing, Joseph thought that Mary had, he thought she'd been unfaithful. And miraculously, we have a, A miraculous event taking place where an angel comes and reaffirms to Joseph that her pregnancy is the fulfilling of prophecy, specifically what Isaiah had said. The point is simply this, according to the prophecy and the fulfillment, Jesus was the Messiah. He is God with us. Now, let's go on over to Micah 5.2 because we also have prophesied, and there's a lot of prophecies I had to leave out of here, but we also have prophesied where the Messiah is going to be born. Micah 5 2. But thou, Bethlehem, Ephratah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth. Who's this he? The Messiah. Unto me that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from, old, from of old, from everlasting. All right, now let's head on over to Matthew chapter 2. I know this is a lot of page turning, but it's the only way to look at the prophecy and then confirm the fulfillment as we show that Christ was in fact the Messiah. Matthew chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, where was Jesus born? Bethlehem. Where would the Messiah be prophesied to be born? There in Bethlehem. When Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod, the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem. Let me, let me make a real quick sidetrack. How many of you guys shake your head? How many of you guys know the tradition of how many wise men there were? We sing songs, right? The Bible never tells how many wise men there were. The Bible does use the word to show there was a plurality, and we do know how many gifts they brought, but the Bible never says there were three wise men. There was at least two, because that's a plurality of men, but the Bible doesn't declare how many, okay? So here's what we know so far. Not only did Jesus meet the requirement of the virgin birth, He also meets the requirement of the prophesied-like location, uh, where the Messiah was going to be born. Now, let's go on over to 2 Samuel chapter 7. If you guys don't know where your uh, where your books are in your Old and New Testaments, you will by the end of today. 2 Samuel chapter 7, and I want to point this out. Now, this was already covered back 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 in Matthew 1:18, but we know that the Messiah is going to be the descendant of King David and he's going to be called the Son of God. Well, we already noticed there, Joseph, thou son of David. So we know what lineage Joseph is of, but we also know the lineage specifically that the Messiah was prophesied to be of. So let's notice he's uh, going to be a descendant of the king, King David, and he also will be the Son of God. Second Samuel 7, starting in verse 11. And as since that time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, and have caused thee to rest from all thine enemies... Also the Lord telleth thee that he will make thee an house, and when the days be fulfilled, and thou shalt sleep with thy fathers. There we have a description of him being dead, right? I will set up thy seed after thee. All right, this is going to be your lineage. Which shall proceed out of thy bowels, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build an house for my name. I don't have time to go back, but we can look at New Testament Scripture, which shows that the house of the Lord is the church, Okay. It goes on. He shall build an house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. All right, this isn't a physical kingdom, this is a spiritual kingdom. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. If he commit iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the children of men. But my mercy shall not depart from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I put away before thee. And thine house and thy kingdom shall be established forever before thee. Thy throne shall be established forever. According to all these words, and according to all this vision, so did Nathan speak unto David. Now there was a lot involved there in that prophecy. But here's what we know so far as we begin to look at the prophecies regarding the Messiah. We know that he would be of the lineage of David, he would be of the tribe of Judah, and David was told that his one of his descendants was going to be the Messiah. Jesus was a direct descendant of King David, he meets the prophetic requirements to be the Messiah. we've already looked at a few of the other requirements. Now here's the thing I want to point out, and here's where many get confused when you begin to look at that section of Scripture. David was an earthly king on an earthly throne. Again, I can't go back and spend time on it. You remember the kind of king that the Jews were looking for, right? They were expecting an earthly king from their Messiah, and they still are, on an earthly throne, and many of them still waiting for an earthly kingdom. Often many of them have this idea of the premillennial reign. Again, it's another topic to go into. David was an earthly king on an earthly throne, but he's being told here his descendant, the Messiah, is going to be a spiritual king on a spiritual everlasting throne, and he would be the Son of God. Notice Psalms 2, verses 6 and 7. Hopefully, you guys are using your outlines and following along. I know this is a lot, but I'm trying to lay it out in a very logical way. Notice another prophecy. Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. Anytime you see that word Zion, you know that's Jerusalem. And I know that many of these passages you're all familiar with since we're all reading through the Bible in a year. But we've laid it out this way to make it simple. Now notice he says, I will declare, I will declare the decree the Lord has said unto me, Thou art my son... This day have I begotten thee. Now, you may be saying, how can you show me that that's regarding Jesus? Let's go on over to Acts chapter 13. Let's look at the fulfillment and let's look at what Paul says as Paul directly goes back to that scripture of passage. Acts 13, starting in verse 33. I love to hear those pages turn, guys. God hath fulfilled the same unto us their children, and that he hath raised up Jesus again, as it is also written in the second psalm, that's where I just read from, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Let me pause for a second. How do I know he's talking about Jesus? Jesus is the only person that was ever resurrected from the dead. And he he points that out and he refers back to the passage here. Verse 34. And it's concerning that he raised him up from the dead. Now no more to return to corruption. His body didn't decay, we know that. He said on this wise, I will give you the sure mercies of David. And wherefore he saith also in another psalm, Thou shalt not suffer thine Holy One to see corruption. Now again, I'm going to go on over to Hebrews chapter 5 as we look at another New Testament passage from the Hebrews writer. Again, by inspiration. He says, So also Christ glorified not Himself to be made an high priest, but He that said unto Him, Thou art my Son, today have I begotten thee. What's the point so far? Well, Jesus is the fulfillment of the prophecies to be the Son of God to be the high priest and king on a spiritual throne. Again, his kingdom is a spiritual kingdom, which was in effect in the first century. Now, so many people get confused when we begin to talk about the kingdom. I don't have time for that. That's a whole nother sermon. But I can solve the problem in two verses. Two verses, really. And that's, that's really all I need to do the entire sermon. Let's go on over to Revelation chapter 1. And I'm going to show you that the kingdom was in effect in the first century. No doubt about it, the kingdom was in effect. As a matter of fact, John was in the kingdom. And as a Christian, certainly he would be, and I'll explain this. Notice Revelation 1 verse 9. I, John, who also am your brother, he's talking to other Christians, and companion in tribulation, and in the kingdom, and patience of Jesus Christ, was in the isle that is called Patmos, that's when he wrote the book of Revelation, for the word of God, that's why he's there, and for the testimony of Jesus Christ." John says he's currently in the kingdom. The kingdom is in effect. Now, this isn't in your notes, but jot down Matthew 16, 18, and 19. Jesus said, I'm going to build my church. And he tells the apostles, I'm going to give you the keys to the kingdom. The keys to the kingdom are the gospel. And when people obeyed the gospel, they were added to the kingdom. It's a spiritual kingdom over which he is high priest, a king on a spiritual throne. And we clearly get the understanding that that this is a spiritual kingdom. It did come into effect in the first century. John says he's in it, and there are numerous other passages that talk about us being translated into the kingdom. That's past tense, all right? Let's move on for just a minute. Let's go on over to Isaiah chapter 42. Let's begin to talk about his ministry. That's really all the time I have to talk about his birth. But we do know that regarding all of the prophecies of Christ and his birth, the location of his birth... And what that birth would mean as far as to His position, we see the prophecies and we see the confirmation. Now let's look at His ministry. We're going to learn over here in Isaiah 42 that Jesus is going to, or the Messiah, the Messiah is going to bring light to the Gentiles. I'll show you that this in fact is Jesus. And and here's what we need to understand as we begin to point this out. This was not understood by by the Jews at the time. Many of these prophecies were to them a mystery. They didn't quite get it. And the Jews had prided themselves on being, in essence, really the only followers of God. Now, if you were a Gentile, you could become a proselyte, and you could come into the Jewish faith. But for the most part, the Jews were considered really to be, I'll use their words, they looked down on them as dogs, as filthy, as unclean. And the Jews prided themselves on being separate from the Gentiles. But here's what was going to happen. There was going to be a Messiah who would come, and that Messiah was going to bridge the divide between the Jew and and the Gentile. And in effect, the gospel, what would bridge the divide, would take the two and merge them into one authorized body under Christ, which would be the only ordained body, and that would be the church. Now, notice Isaiah 42, starting in verse 1. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, mine elect, and whom my soul delighteth, I have put my spirit upon him. Right? He's inspired. He shall bring forth judgment to the Gentiles, he shall not cry, nor lift up, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed shall he not break, and the smoking flax shall he not quench. He shall bring forth judgment unto truth. Uh, write down John 17:17. 17, 17. What is truth? Well, his word is truth. Let me keep going. He shall not fail, nor be discouraged, till he have set judgment in the earth. Let me pause for again. How is judgment going to take place in the earth? Every man will be judged according to his word. John 12, 48. Write that down in your notes. That's not in my notes. I'm just giving it to you on the fly so it helps you make sense here. Till he have set judgment in the earth, and the isles shall wait for his law. What law will that be? Well, that's going to be our New Testament law. That's why we don't follow the old law. None of us are going to sacrifice a bull today, right? We don't live under the Old Testament. Thus saith God the Lord, He that created the heavens and stretched them out, he that spread forth the earth and that which cometh out of it, He that giveth breath unto the people upon it, and spirit to them that walk therein, I the Lord have called thee in righteousness, and will hold thine hand, and will keep thee, and give thee for a covenant of the people, that's the New Covenant, the New Testament, for a light of the Gentiles, to open the blind eyes, to bring out the prisoners from the prison, and them that sit in darkness out of the prison house. What's he saying here real quick before we move on over to Colossians 2.14? He's saying there's going to be a new covenant that's going to come into place. The old law, the Old Testament, what the Jews lived under, that's going to come to an end. But Jesus is going to give light unto the Gentiles, and it's also available to the Jews. We can look at a number of verses. But it would be first to the Jews and then to the Gentile, and they would be able to have the option to be included among those who are the faithful followers of God. In essence, what he's saying here is, is the Old Testament's going to be replaced by the New Testament. Now many may say, well, when did that happen? Let's notice Colossians 2.14, and then we're going to go back to Isaiah 9. Notice Isaiah 2.14, tells us when the law stopped, the old law of Moses. It says, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to His cross. When Jesus died on the cross as a Jew, that old law, the old system that the Jews followed, That came to an end. It was nailed to the cross. It's being replaced by the New Testament, this gospel that would be uh, allowing both Jew and Gentile in one body. Now, let's go on over to Isaiah 9, because we're going to show the confirmation that this was, in fact, Jesus. And we can do that by looking at Isaiah's prophecy regarding the Messiah uh, giving this light to the Gentile. Isaiah 9, verses 1 and 2. Nevertheless, the dimness shall not be such as as was in her vexation, when at the first he lightly afflicted the land of Zebulun, remember that uh, right there, and the land of Naphtali, and afterward did more grievously afflict her by the way of the sea, beyond Jordan, in Galilee, of the nations. The people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. They that dwell in in the land of the shadow of death, upon them hath the light shined." All right, so Isaiah is showing us again by prophecy that the Messiah is going to come and He is going to give light unto the Gentiles. Notice the fulfillment over in Matthew chapter 4, verses 15 and 16. Matthew 4, starting in verse 15. The land of Zabulon and the land of Naphtalim, Does this sound familiar? By the way of the sea beyond Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people which sat in darkness saw great light. And to them which sat in the region and shadow of death, light is sprung up. What's being recorded here? Well, Matthew is recording that Jesus was the exact fulfillment of what Isaiah had wrote about, and that Jesus was the Messiah who was bringing light to those who were in darkness. The point? He was the fulfillment of prophecy. Jesus Christ was the Messiah. Now, let's go on over to Isaiah 53, 4, because we learn more about the... uh, about the Messiah. Now, certainly, as we look at his ministry, we see this taking place. Uh, I'm only going to use one New Testament passage to prove it, and I'm going to use the one that actually refers back to Isaiah. Our Messiah, we would know he was the Messiah because he would be going around doing miraculous healings for the sick and the lame. Isaiah 53:4. Surely he hath borne our griefs. That word there is not translated well from the uh, from the Hebrew word. That word should be diseases or you might even render it illnesses surely he hath borne our diseases and carried our sorrows yet we did esteem him stricken smitten of god and afflicted all right now let's head on over to Matthew 8:16 because we see the fulfillment here in in two passages and they refer back to that passage Matthew 8:16 when the even was come, they brought unto Him many that were possessed with... That word is devils in the King James Version. That word is actually demons. Uh, that's a whole other topic. I know we've covered that here in detail, but for anybody watching this online, that word to be translated correctly, I didn't look it up, is Uh, is uh It means demon. And He cast out the spirits with His word and healed all that were sick. Why? that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, that's Isaiah, saying himself took our infirmities and bare our sickness. Jesus is going around healing people. Matthew records that the very fact he's healing people is confirmation of the prophecy given back in Isaiah 53, 4. What's his point? Jesus Christ is the Messiah that was prophesied by Isaiah. You literally see it taking place right here in front of your eyes. Now, let's go on over to Isaiah 61. Guys, there's so many prophecies. and You'll notice that we're, we see a lot in Isaiah, a lot in the Psalms. Uh, but There's prophecies all throughout our New Testament. And there's just so many. I wish we could cover them all. Let's, let's again focus in on the fact that the Messiah is going to be the one preaching the gospel and deliverance in the acceptable year of the Lord. And I phrase it that way because there's no mistake who's doing this based on the New Testament and Old Testament teaching. Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. "...the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He hath sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to them that are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all that mourn." Now let's go back and look at the fulfillment of this. Let's look at the words of Christ over in Luke 4, verses 18 and 19. Notice what he says, "...the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because He hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted." They had seen the miraculous events, events taking place, guys. There was no question. This is not sleight of hand, as some try to say. "...to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord." Now, Jesus right there is showing anybody in the audience who knew their Scriptures... Yeah, the Messiah is coming. You guys all know the prophecy back here from Isaiah. You are literally seeing this prophecy being fulfilled in front of your eyes. I am, in fact, the Messiah. Now, some would say, well, that's pretty easy to claim. Anybody can claim that they're the Messiah and then go back and try to fulfill these prophecies. Well, I'm going to show you there's a couple of prophecies regarding Christ that He couldn't have fulfilled. Uh, They had to be done by other people to be fulfilled, and yet they still uh, were fulfilled regarding our Christ. Let's go on over to Deuteronomy 18. Deuteronomy 18, 18 through 19. This is a passage I think all of you are familiar with. All the way back in the writings of Moses, we have been told to the hearers of God's Word that there was going to be a Messiah and that this Messiah would have the authority of God Himself. We know because because He is God uh, in the flesh. Now... Deuteronomy 18, 18-19. Follow along with me. And then i got to correct something real quick. It's not going to be in your notes. I won't give you any verses, but I'll explain it. Deuteronomy 18, 18-19. And I will raise them up a prophet from among their brethren, like unto thee. And I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak unto them all that I shall command him. And it shall come to pass, that whosoever will not hearken unto my words, which he shall speak, who? This prophet, this Messiah that he shall speak in my name, I will require it of him. Now, I'm not going to go back and spend time on it, but if you have ever studied any of the teachings of the Muslims, and I have a really good study, if anybody wants it, you can download it. Uh, The Muslims claim that this right here, this prophet, is Muhammad. Guys, this is not Muhammad. You'll realize that this prophet was going to be raised up from among their brethren. And this is being written to Jews, so this is going to be a prophet risen up amongst, among the Jews. Now, we've already seen what lineage would be. We've already seen the location. This is not Muhammad. Uh, the Muslims quote this passage actually as confirmation of their uh, supposed scriptures. But this is talking about Christ. Let's go on over to Acts chapter 22. We could have looked at a number of verses. Matter of fact, you might recall. I, didn't, I, I, don't, I don't recall the verse right off the top of my mind. Uh, I'm going to say John chapter 1. Uh, but you'll remember that when John the Baptist was out preaching, people were saying, you know, who are you? Are you Isaiah? Are are you that prophet? They were waiting for that prophet. Well, which prophet? The one that Moses was talking about, right? That's who they were. They were concerned. They were even asking John the Baptist, are you you that prophet? And he said, no, I'm not. Acts 2.22. I'll read down to 23. Ye men of Israel, hear these words. This is Peter. Jesus of Nazareth... A man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs. Let me pause again. Nicodemus had this figured out over in John chapter 3. He said, we know you're a man of God because nobody can do these things if God weren't with him. They knew that this man was of God. He says, which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know. Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. What's he saying? Moses said there was going to be a prophet. Jesus Christ was this prophet that we've been waiting on. He is the Messiah. You could literally see the miraculous being done in front of your eyes, and yet you have taken him and you've killed him. And you guys recall in that sermon there, they were pricked in their hearts. And they said, men and brethren, what shall we do? And he then goes on to tell them. Let's move on over to Isaiah chapter 53, look at verse 9. What do we know about this Messiah? And I'm going to tell you right now, this discounts me. He was going to be without sin. And guys, he had to be. The Messiah had to be without sin. How could he be the perfect sacrifice for our sins if he himself had sin? We recall in the Old Testament they would bring the lamb to slaughter. What was it to be? Without spot, without blemish. Our Passover lamb, our sin offering uh, had to be also without sin and the Messiah would be sinless. Isaiah 53, 9. And He made His grave with the wicked and with the rich in His death. We know that was confirmed in the New Testament because He had done no violence. That word violence is not rendered very well there in Isaiah 53, 9. That word, if you look it up in the Hebrew, is injustice or sin. Who, who are we talking in, in injustice against? God. So we're talking about sin here. Neither was any deceit, in his mouth. Now let's go on over to 1 Peter 2.22, if we have any confusion as to who we're talking about. 1 Peter 2.22, he's talking about Jesus. Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. That's exactly what we find over in Isaiah 53.9 as he's referring to Christ. Now I'm going to go on over to Hebrews 4.15. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin. Now, guys, there are people, and you've all heard it. I've heard it. I've listened to the sermons who go out and teach. Jesus Christ there took all of our sins upon Him on the cross. He became the biggest, most rankest sinner you have ever seen, uh, and that's how He paid the penalty for our sins. Jesus Christ did become the sin offering for our sins, but Jesus Christ didn't take every one of our sins upon Him Himself. Jesus Christ was without sin. And again, I can't go back. People will say God turned His... God turned his head from uh, from Jesus on the cross because he had so much sin and he couldn't look at him. Guys, I've covered that in passages. God was looking down on him the entire time. We can look at the passages that actually declare it. Jesus was spotless, he was without sin. He was the spotless sin offering on our behalf. There is nothing I could ever do to try to atone for my own sins. I needed a sinless Savior. And that's who Jesus was. Now let's go on and talk about His persecution and death. I'm going to focus quite a bit on this. And I do want you to realize as we go through this, some of these prophecies, because people have tried to say Jesus was the biggest traitor of all time. Miracles were sleight of hand. He basically did everything to show that He was the Messiah by intentionally fulfilling prophecies. But many of these prophecies were done out of His control. Let's notice that the Messiah would be hated without a cause. Psalm 69:4. They that hate me without a cause are more than the hairs of mine head. And they that would destroy me, being mine enemies wrongfully, are mighty. Then I restored that which I took not away. Let's go on over to John 15. John 15. And we're going to look at verse 25 as we see the fulfillment here. But this cometh to pass, what? The prophecy that I just read to you. That the word might be fulfilled that is written in their law... They hated me, excuse me, they hated me without cause. What's he saying? That prophecy in Psalms 69 is referring directly to me, the Messiah, okay? That's what I'm talking about. I'm the Messiah. You literally see the prophecy being fulfilled in front of your eyes. Let's go on over to Zechariah chapter 13. We're going to notice that the Messiah would be smitten. I don't mean like when people say, hey, I'm smitten with you. I mean, he's going to be smited, okay? He's going to be smitten, Zechariah thirteen seven. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd and against the man that is my fellow, saith the Lord of hosts. Smite the shepherd and the sheep shall be scattered and I will turn mine hand upon the little ones. Now let's go on over to Matthew 26 because we see the confirmation of this prophecy. Notice what Jesus says in Matthew twenty six thirty one. I love to hear the pages turn, guys. Maybe we'll actually read the entire Bible today. (laughs) Then saith Jesus unto them, All ye shall be offended because of me this night, for it is written, I will smite the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered abroad. What's Jesus saying? For all of you here who know the prophecy there in Zechariah, you're seeing it fulfilled right before your eyes. I am, in fact, the Messiah. Mark 14, 27 Again, Jesus makes it clear he's the Messiah. And Jesus saith unto them, And ye shall be offended because of me this night, for it is written, I will smite the shepherd, and the sheep shall be scattered. Jesus Christ is saying very clearly for anybody who's willing to listen, and they've already seen the miraculous acts, uh, they should have known at this point. But in case they had missed it, he's saying, I'm the Messiah, right here in front of your eyes. Let's notice he would be humiliated and killed over in Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah 53. And this is exactly how we know where the Ethiopian eunuch uh, was reading there in Acts chapter 8. So we're going to go to Acts chapter 8 after Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, 7 and 8, talking about our Lord and Savior. And we sometimes read this prior to the Lord's Supper. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, and yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter. Remember I told you he is our perfect spotless lamb. He's the sin offering. And as a sheep before her shears is dumb. And so he openeth not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living. for Not because of anything he did. For the transgression of my people was he stricken. Now... You may say, well, that's a good prophecy from Isaiah regarding what would happen to the Messiah. How do we know that this was Jesus? It's going over to Acts chapter 8, verse 32. Most of you are all familiar with all the passages I'm using. I'm just laying them out in a way to make sense. This is the account there with Philip the evangelist. This is not Philip the apostle. Philip the evangelist, as he comes up to the uh, chariot there with the Ethiopian eunuch, and he hears him reading. The place of the scripture and this is Acts 8:32 and 33 the place of the scripture which he read was this. So he's reading from Isaiah 53. "He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, and like a lamb dumb before his shears, so opened he not his mouth. In his humiliation, his judgment was taken away, and who shall declare his generation, for his life is taken from the earth? In verse 34, I'm not going to read it. But the Ethiopian eunuch asks to Philip the evangelist. He says, who's the writer writing about? Is this about himself or is this about somebody else? Verse 35, he begins to preach unto him Jesus. Why was he preaching unto him Jesus? Isaiah 53, talking about our Messiah, was in fact talking about Jesus Christ, who was in fact the Messiah. And he would be humiliated and killed. Part of that process going over to Psalms 41, nine, was he was going to be betrayed by a friend. How many of you guys have ever had a friend betray you? It really hurts. But And not only were they told it was going to happen, the prophecies make it clear. Psalm 41, nine, Yea, mine own familiar friend in whom I trusted, which did eat of my bread, hath lifted up his heel against me. Let's notice John 13.18. We have the prophecy being fulfilled here. Jesus says, I speak not of you all, I know whom I have chosen, but that the scripture may be fulfilled. He that eateth bread with me hath lifted up his heel against me. What's he saying? For all of you guys who know the Jewish prophecies regarding the betrayal of the Messiah, I am the Messiah, and the one who is here eating this bread with me will be the one who is going to betray me. Going over to Zechariah 11, we actually see why he betrayed him sold him out for money, specifically 30 pieces of silver. And guys, I want you to remember this. this our, our scriptures were written by over 40 men, 40 different men writing by inspiration. There is no way that 40 uninspired men could write the different books we have in our Bible and have all of them be in unison. There's no way that somebody could actually write uh, books in such a way that they all line up. right? Guys, I make mistakes all the time. And there is no way that our inspired scriptures could have been written by uninspired men. Notice the amount he was sold out for, Zechariah 11:12, 12. And I said unto them, If you think good, give me my price, and if not, forbear. So they weighed for my price 30 pieces of silver. How in the world did he know the exact amount? Well, he's writing by inspiration. And we then see where Matthew records in Matthew 27:9, And he's going to refer back to Zechariah. Then was fulfilled that which was spoken by Jeremy the prophet. It's recorded in a couple spots. Saying, And they took thirty pieces of silver, the price of him that was valued, whom they of the children of Israel did value. What's he saying? The Messiah who would be betrayed for thirty pieces of silver was, in fact, Jesus Christ, who was the Messiah, who was betrayed for, guess what? Thirty pieces of silver. He was the Messiah. Now let's go on over to Psalms 22.18. I'm making pretty good time here. Psalms 22.18, we're going to look at the uh, fact that they were going to part his, his garments and cast lots. Psalms 22.18, They part my garments among them and cast lots upon my vesture. I'm not going to go back and, and spend much time on it, but the reason they were casting lots is uh, they, didn't, they didn't want to part the inner the inner clothing. It, was, uh, it would have been very expensive clothing or expensive to make or delicate to make, and so they didn't want to rip it. The outer garments were less, were less uh, expensive. They could tear those up and, and use them, but the inner ones they didn't want to tear those apart, and so they cast lots so somebody could get the entire vesture. Matthew records over in Matthew 27:35, "...and they crucified him and parted his garment..." Let me pause for just a second, guys. Listen really close. So many people this year right now, they're focusing on the birth of Jesus Christ. It's the death. It is the death of Jesus Christ. It is the shedding of the blood that was the whole goal of His entire ministry. Many people this year have got their focus so wrong. The focus should be on the death. That's what we do every week when we go back and we have the Lord's Supper. And we look at the death burial and that resurrection, when He offered His body, when His blood was shed. Matthew 27, 35, "...and they crucified Him and parted His garments, casting lots, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet. They parted My garments among them, and upon My vestures did they cast lots." He's talking about Jesus Christ. The prophecy that was fulfilled was regarding Jesus Christ. Let's go on over to John nineteen twenty four. and notice what John records, because he also gives us, well, basically what I just explained to you, understanding as to why they did what they did. John nineteen twenty four. They said, Therefore, among themselves, let us not rend it, or tear it, but cast lots for it, whose it shall be, that the Scripture might be fulfilled, which saith, They parted my raiment among them, and for my vesture did they cast lots. These things, therefore, the soldiers did." It was prophesied, and it's been confirmed that this was, in fact, the Messiah. It was Jesus. Let's notice that the tormentors would pierce him. This is important, and I can't spend much time on it. Uh, it was prophesied that his legs would not be broken. Okay, Again, his body hung on the cross, but none of his, his legs were not broken. Standard procedure when one was um, crucified, now if you guys... I have to give a brief explanation. So when when they put the nails, uh, we always see the nails right here. When they put the nails through here, uh, they would put them on the on the cross. And what would happen was is as they began to hang down, and you'll notice there was a block under their feet. The one nail that went through the foot, the block was under their feet for them to push up. Okay, because as they were there, they would begin to hang down, and literally they, they would start to. Uh, their lungs would begin to fill with fluid and they would begin to suffocate. And the only way they could breathe was to push up off of that block and breathe and come back down, okay? So oftentimes what they would do is at the end they would come and if they weren't quite sure if they were dead or if they wanted to make them die quicker, they would break their legs. Why? They couldn't push up off of the block to breathe and therefore they would suffocate, okay? Hopefully that makes you guys have a little better understanding. They didn't break our Lord and Savior's uh, legs. John nineteen twenty four. They said, therefore, among themselves, let us not rend it. Oh, sorry, I'm, I'm down to Zechariah twelve ten. Sorry, Zechariah twelve ten. It says, uh, and this is where the tormentors are going to pierce him. And I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication. And they shall look upon me whom they have pierced. And they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son and shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. Jesus had already, as it's worded, given up the ghost. And so as they came, uh, at the time when they would have broken his legs, he was already dead. So they needed to confirm he was dead. So what did they do? They took the spear and they pierced him. What came out? Blood and water. That's a whole other sermon right there. Blood and water came out. Notice Psalms 22.16 as we look at the confirmation. Another, this is actually another prophecy, and then we'll look at the confirmation. For dogs have compassed me, the assembly of the wicked have enclosed me, they pierced my hands and my feet. That's pretty specific on how the Messiah is going to die. Very specific. Now let's look at the confirmation here. And this actually is going to go back to Zechariah. The fulfillment, John 19, 37. And again, another scripture saith, which one? Zechariah. They shall look on him whom they pierced. All right, Jesus was the Messiah. The one that you see that was up on the cross, the one that they pierced his hands and his feet, the one that they, they pierced up into the side, that was in fact the Messiah. Jesus was the fulfillment of that prophecy. Let's notice that his death was going to be a sacrifice for mankind. I'm going to go over to Isaiah 53, 5. Isaiah 53, 5. But He was wounded for our transgressions, right? This is for us. It's nothing that He did. He was bruised for our iniquities. And the chastisement of our peace was upon Him. And with His stripes we are healed. Going over to 1 Peter 2. 1 Peter 2, verse 24. Peter writes by inspiration. "...who his own self bear..." That word there really means to carry... "...who His own self carried our sins in His own body up on the tree, that we being dead to sins, those who have obeyed the faith, should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes ye were healed." Now again, many have accused Christ of being a fraudster. Jesus couldn't, Jesus couldn't go back and fulfill things that were out of His control when they were hanging Him up on the cross, when they were, uh, when they were putting Him to death and piercing Him and so forth. He was the Messiah... He was the perfect sacrifice, the lamb without spot, who could atone for man's sins. And that brings us really down here to the final point here, the triumph of the Messiah. They weren't just going to kill him, and that was the end of it. He's going to be resurrected. Let's go on over to Psalm 16, 8 through 11. Psalm 16, starting in verse 8. I have set the Lord always before me, because He is at my right hand. I shall not be moved. And therefore my heart is glad, and my glory rejoiceth. My flesh also shall rest in hope. For thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, that word is Hades, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Jesus' body wasn't in that tomb long enough to decay and see corruption, right? Thou wilt show me the path of life. In thy presence is fullness of joy. At the right hand there are pleasure forevermore. I'm not going to spend time on it, but we know people always ask, what's the significance of the right hand? The right hand for most people is the hand of strength, right? Most people are right-handed. Anytime you begin to see that right hand, you also see it regarding the right hand of fellowship. This is the hand of strength, the hand of power. Now, let's go on over to Acts chapter 2, verse 25. We're going to look at 25 through 28. And Peter's going to explain this to us. Because many, and we also have uh, some other prophecies that tie into this, but many get confused as to this being played out. Peter worried about those in the crowd. He's explaining that Jesus was the Messiah. And he goes back to this scripture here. He says, For David speaketh concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is on my right hand. Does this sound familiar from the Psalms? That I should not be moved, and therefore did my heart rejoice, and my tongue was glad. Moreover, also my flesh shall rest in hope, because thou wilt not leave my soul in Hades, neither wilt thou suffer thine Holy One to see corruption. Thou hast made known to me the ways of life, and thou shalt make, full of, shalt make me full of joy with countenance. Now, let's go on over to Acts chapter 3. Peter's laying out to these Jews in the crowd. Yeah, he was the Messiah. He was, and you killed him. Notice Acts three fourteen and 15. But ye denied the Holy One. Which one? The one I was talking about, as we have recorded in our Bible, uh, back in chapter 2. Ye have denied the Holy One and the just, and desired a murderer to be granted unto you. There, in the crowd screaming, give us Barabbas. Kill the Messiah, but give us Barabbas. And killed the Prince of Life, whom God hath raised from the dead, whereof we are witnesses. Peter says he's the Messiah. You all knew it. You could see it. He fulfilled all the prophecies, and you guys killed him. But here's the thing. They didn't just kill him and put him in a grave. Let's go on and notice he would sit at the right hand of God, Psalm 110.1. The Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool." Now this is going to be confirmed over in Acts chapter 2. I'm going back to Acts chapter 2 where we were. This is Peter giving the very first gospel sermon to the Jews in the crowd there on the day of Pentecost. This is the day that the church was established. Acts 2, 34 and 35. Peter is pointing out this this prophecy wasn't regarding David. He says, "...for David is not ascended into the heavens." David wasn't resurrected. His grave is here. We all know where it's at. You all can go look at it. That's not what he's talking about. But he set himself, the Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand until I make thy foes thy footstool. Peter says this prophecy didn't have anything to do with, with David. This is talking about the Messiah. And you all saw that he was the Messiah based on the fact that the prophecies were fulfilled. And guess what? You killed him. The Messiah would be the head cornerstone, Psalm 118, 22 through 23. The stone which the builders refused, that's Jesus who was refused, is become the headstone of the corner. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. Now let's go on over and look at Jesus' words in Matthew 21. I'm almost done, guys. Matthew 21, verse 42. Jesus saith unto them, Did you never read in the Scriptures the stone which the builders rejected, the same is become the head of the corner? This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Right? That's Jesus is going right back to the Psalms. He says, Therefore say I unto you, The kingdom of God shall be taken from you. The Jews are no longer going to be considered the spiritual kingdom that people would live in under the reign of God. The new kingdom was going to be the New Testament. It would be the church. The kingdom was taken from the Jews, that spiritual kingdom, and it was given to the church because people now had to obey the gospel to become a follower of God. He says... Therefore I say unto you, the kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation, bringing forth the fruits thereof. What's he saying? Jesus Christ is saying, I in fact am the Messiah. There's a new covenant coming into effect. You you Jews, and let let me point this out. Again, there was nothing ever wrong with the Old Testament law. The law of Moses was perfect. The problem was with people. People could never keep The law of Moses. And they came back year after year after year, and they sacrificed to atone for their sins, but they continued to sin all over again. Their sins were not dealt with once and completely and and finally. But Christ is going to offer a new sacrifice. It would atone for sins, and it it would continue to cleanse through the blood of Christ. It's a whole other sermon. Jesus is saying, I'm that Messiah, and I'm bringing into effect a new covenant. One more prophecy. And, and really, Wendy mentioned this morning, we we're talking about judgment. Um, many people don't really think about judgment. Going over to Isaiah 45, every knee is going to bow before the Messiah. Every knee. Isaiah 45, 23, I have sworn by myself the word is gone out of my mouth in righteousness and shall, and shall not return that unto me every knee shall bow, every tongue Shall swear. Now I'm going to go over to the fulfillment of this in Philippians chapter 2, verse 10. And this makes it very clear, if you didn't know who the Messiah was, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of the Father. Well, everybody understood that every knee will bow before the Messiah, but if you didn't know who that Messiah was... Uh, Paul, by inspiration, writes there in Philippians that that Messiah is Jesus. Well, I know we covered a lot of Scripture. Uh, Keep the outlines. Go back and double-check everything that I've said to you. I hope this gives you, especially during this time of year, maybe at least when you have an opportunity to have more spiritual conversations with people, that much of this comes to mind and you can begin to go back and show them that, yes, Christ was, in fact, the Messiah. Now, as I draw this to a close, my concern would be for anybody here here, or anybody watching this who has not obeyed the gospel, we've already talked about the Old Testament coming to an end, the New Testament coming into effect. The New Testament is very simple to understand. You can look at all the conversion accounts, and here's how easy it is to become a Christian. Somebody needs to teach you the Word of God, or you need to go back and learn it. That's how faith comes by hearing Romans 10, 17. You need to have faith, Hebrews 11:6, and You need to believe that Jesus Christ was the Son of God, or you'll die in your sins. John 8, 24. You need to have an understanding that all men have come short of the glory of God, Romans 3:23, and the consequence is death. And therefore, you are required to repent of your sins by Jesus himself, Luke 13, verse 3 and 5. And Paul taught the same thing to the Gentiles there on Mars Hill. You need to confess Christ with your mouth. We saw the example of the Ethiopian eunuch, uh, Romans 10, 9 and 10. And then you need to be immersed in water, for the remission of sins. Jesus uh, gives the statement there in Mark 16, 15, and 16. Peter commands it in Acts two thirty eight. Uh, it's how you get into Christ, Galatians three twenty six and 27. We can look at a lot of verses. Uh, and then you need to be faithful. 2 Timothy 4, verse 7 and 8, also Revelation two ten. That's how easy it is to become a Christian. The hard part is being a faithful Christian. As I draw this to a close, each one of you please look back throughout the week. Ask yourself, were there areas where you, you fell short? Uh, If you did, repent of those things. Again, I mentioned the blood of Christ will continue to cleanse if you will repent of those things and turn from them and walk in the light, 1 John 1, 7-9. If there's a way we can help you at all this morning, whether it's to put on Christ in baptism or if there's another spiritual need, you can make that known as we stand and we're led in a song of invitation.